Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 25th, 2012, and my guest is David Schmitz, the Kendrick Professor of Philosophy and Professor of Economics at the University of Arizona and founding director of the University of Arizona's Freedom Center. David, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. Thanks for having me on. What a pleasure it is to be here. Our topic for today is economic justice. We're going to talk about John Rawls, Robert Nozick, and the notion of economic justice generally. So let's start with John Rawls. His book, A Theory of Justice, was published in 1971. Correct. Talk about that book. Oh, well, it begins with Rawls trying to uh, set out a theory of justice, and he sees sees theorizing about justice as a project of modeling a kind of fairness, like – Different things can be fair, and evaluation can be fair or not, and shares can be fair or not. So Rawls is uh, Rawls is giving us a theory about what would make uh, shares fair, and uh, the obvious first thing to say, which is the first thing he says, is that the the fair way to divide a pie would be into equal shares. But he said. There is, in some theoretical way, another alternative. So suppose that the pie size is is variable, and that how large the pie would be would be in part a function of how we decided to divide it. So different ways of dividing it, and possibly unequal ways of dividing it, would be would lead to a larger pie, and conceivably could lead to larger and smaller shares, but. But uh, a pie so large that even the smallest share is what is something that would that is a larger slice than would than an equal share would have been in the uh, of the smaller pie, and so that's that's the original um, the original driving uh, motivation of that theory. So he comes up with a principle of maximizing uh, maximum equal liberties for all, but but there's also a principle for distributing. It's interpreted as a principle of uh, distributing goods, of course, but that's not literally what it says. It literally says uh, you distribute inequalities in such a way uh, that even the least advantaged uh, ends up more advantaged than would be possible under a more egalitarian scheme. So that that principle is called the uh, the difference principle: distribute inequalities so that so as to the, to be to the greatest advantage of the least advantaged. So the ideal would be if, – if it didn't affect the size of the pie, uh, the ideal would be equal shares. But we're yeah. willing to tolerate inequality as long as it improves the well-being of the worst off yeah. person. It improves the welfare of everyone, including the least advantaged. Oh, including – okay. Yeah. Well, interestingly, the first two statements of that difference principle before 1971 – actually said it in that open-ended way, make sure that the inequalities are to everyone's advantage, including the least advantaged. Now, by 1971, he's actually changing his story in a, in a seemingly subtle but, in fact, momentous way. Is 
He says, well, actually there are indefinitely numerous solutions out on that frontier of welfare that would be compatible with that principle and numerously different uh, uh, unequal distributions that would be good for everyone. So he said, so what we've got here is at best an incomplete ordering principle and we need something that's complete. And so we have to define a principle that picks out a definite spot on that frontier. So he says, well, let's pick the, the spot on the frontier that is to the greatest advantage of the least advantage so that the smallest share is as large as it can possibly be. Now, uh, that's, that is an intuitively obvious principle to pick. I, I actually think that if, is. If you thought it was crucial to have a, a specific, a outcome, a solution. I mean, I don't, it's not clear that that's ideal per se. Well, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, and in fact, what I would say is that it isn't the job of a, this is a basic structure that we're talking about defining. And it isn't a basic structure's job to pick out a particular outcome. I mean, the reason we want uh, a set of traffic management tools and policies, I mean, we want to agree that red means stop and green means go, is that we want to minimize the cost for everyone, including the least advantage of getting to their destinations. So the the point isn't to be maximally advantageous. The point isn't to get everyone to the same ge- uh, destination. And it you'd think Rawls would not have said that either. He would agree with that. But yet this idea that we need to pick a specific outcome is, I think, uh, a subtle but major turn in 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 a in a wrong direction, uh, I have to say that uh, that the point of basic structures is to put us in a position where we can pr- pursue our own plans in a way that isn't threatening to each other. Uh, but uh, but to do this is it put uh, as Nozick is going to come along and say in 1974 that puts people in a position where the rest of us are supposed to think our job in life as as uh, people committed to justice, or the job of our, the job of our basic structure anyway, is to make sure that those other folks out there are made so well off that if the system tried to do anything worse, anything better for them, it would end up. It tried to do more for them, it would end up couldn't being less. Yeah, couldn't do and it. Nozick says that that is that is just a, an an amazing thing to expect of a system of justice and informing basic structure that is supposed to respect us all as reciprocators and is supposed to treat us all as inviolate separate persons who come to come to the community with hopes and dreams of our own. Of course not everyone would accept that, but that I happen to like that one and obviously yeah. Nozick thought that was crucial. Yes. But let's we'll come but, to Nozick. But Rawls did too. Yeah. Well we'll come to, to Nozick in more detail in, in a little bit, but let's let's still stick with Rawls. Tell 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 us a little bit about him. About Rawls, oh, his background well, and interests. And you mentioned uh, before we started the interview, he was uh, he hung out with a lot of economists, which I didn't realize. Yeah, he among his friends were were James Buchanan, and Ken Arrow, and William Riker, and Amartya Sen. Uh, those, uh, I mean, these folks were different generations too. But but that was uh, that was a, a group of people that formed you know Rawls's 
These were Rawls's friends and mentors in his discussion group. These were the people that he bounced ideas off of. And so the, the young Rawls was very much conversant with, with the, this developing uh, field, I mean, rapidly developing at the time, field of political economy, very much versed in, in the game theory and the welfare economics uh, of, of the time. So yeah, you know, very much educated in this, and very very sensitive to it, and and very very keen to bring the insights of that field to philosophy, and very successful at bringing the insights to philosophy. He 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 uh, he lifted the profession out of a state. I think, I mean, to say single-handed would be, well, historically inaccurate, I suppose, but he probably. I think it would be fair to say that Rawls, more than anyone else, kind of broke the equilibrium in which uh, moral and political philosophers were basically saying, well, there's some kind of dialectic of historical materialism and and doesn't really matter. We can't do much about that anyway. As philosophers, it's not our job. Our job is to define terms, uh, or better yet, Get somebody else to define terms, and then we can poke holes in their definitions. You know, he who defines a term first loses the game. Basically, uh, that was the game at the time to just think about consistency, not worry about truth, not worry about empirical correlation. So, in effect, not worry about practicality. So, so it, philosophy had almost proudly come to a, a state where it had nothing to say about politics. Or ethics, for that matter. Now, now, one idea that I think a lot of people have heard of from Rawls, and I'm looking, I mean, we're sitting in my office uh, doing this interview face to face, and uh, I can't quite see the full section of the R's in my bookshelf, but uh, I once owned a copy of The Theory of Justice. I may still own it. Um, I have read maybe half of it. It's a hard, fat book. Um, it's not easy going, so I appreciate the help. But one idea that I remember and I think many people have heard of is the idea of the veil of ignorance. Mm-hmm. Describe what that is and how it entered Rawls's formulation of justice. It's a it's a hard book for anyone. It's a it's a long book and it's a a very sophisticated book. I mean, he's pulling together a very large number of threads of philosophy and political economy. Uh, trying to pull them in and weave a fabric uh, out of them, so so it's it's not your fault. I mean, uh, everybody who takes the book seriously has uh, has trouble with it. I mean, it's just full of full of insight. But if you think about the um, how we get to that task of dividing the pie. And really, the prior task of getting the pie to the table in the first place, yeah. okay. which you know I don't think he does enough to talk about that. He's talking about people as as separate agents, separate persons, separate producers, and respecting their their separateness in a way that utilitarianism fails to do. And part of my problem is that well, he want, he goes on later as he's divorcing himself from the political economist that formed his early discussion group he's he's going on to to talk about um, say the distribution of talent and saying well here's why we would originally go for that semi-egalitarian distribution that we'd only want to depart from 
egalitarianism strictly equal shares if we could do so in a mutually advantageous direction the obvious answer would be uh well actually I'm I've got talent I've got something in me I've got something that I I want to bring to the table and I want to bring to society but I want to I want to be the first person who makes money from it I I want I want to uh you know, Adam Smith would say, I want to be esteemed for this, and I want to make money for it. But in any case, uh, the point is, some people say, actually, I have premium talent. I, uh, As a matter of respecting me as a, as a separate person, I want to be paid a premium price for my premium talent. And Rawls would say, well, that's a problem. You know, I understand the intuition that people deserve to be paid what they're worth. They deserve the marginal product of their of their creative output and so on. But Rawls says that's not the direction we're going to go in. We're going to go in the direction of this difference principle that starts with equality and only departs from it for the sake of giving everyone a larger bundle of primary goods. So it's not about giving people what they deserve. It's about giving people somewhat better than an equal share. And so he says, you know, this will be more intuitive if we imagine ourselves in a, in a fair situation where we don't come with our biases about how talented we are and how much more we should get paid how much more we should get paid than the joneses and so on so the thing to think about is to imagine ourselves bargaining in a situation where we don't really know where our personal interests lie so for example we may think shouldn't someone who can throw a baseball 100 miles an hour get paid more than than someone who can't? Uh, shouldn't they, in fact, be paid millions of dollars? Uh, and you say, well, <laughs> that isn't obvious. But, but however we decide that question, let's not let the pitchers decide it, and let's not let the, even the fans decide it. Let's, uh, let's have people decide it without knowing whether they're pitchers or people who are completely indifferent to the whole sport and would not watch an inning of that game to save their lives. So get everybody in the room, get all the, I mean, people representing anyway, every, uh, every perspective in the room, and have them make that decision in a truly impartial way. So the point of the uh, veil of ignorance is to say to people, what you're supposed to be imagining is if you don't know who you are, so there's X, Y, and Z. There's some guy out there named Russ Roberts, but you don't know that you're Russ Roberts. How much do you think Russ Roberts should get? And if you decide, here's what Russ Roberts should get, and you don't know that you're Russ Roberts, well, then your the answer you come up with will be a lot more impartial than if you do know that you're Russ Roberts. So pretend you don't know who you are. Yeah, it, it's actually, um, it, it's using the word impartial reminds me of, Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments, where he often invokes the impartial spectator, a person who's impartial in, say, a dispute between two parties who are angry at each other, or one who's seeking vengeance, or one who's been offended. And and since that impartial spectator doesn't have the emotional baggage and, and the bias of the participants, that's the that's the exemplar we should turn to for how we should uh, behave in that situation. There's something of that in Rawls, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. This is this is uh, these are these are certainly fellow travelers in a tradition. I mean, Rawls belongs in more than one tradition, but the uh, the contractarian tradition is something that he has links to, 
and the uh, the moral sympathy tradition is something that he has links to. So uh, now, of course, one of the problems with the veil of ignorance, uh, and you're mentioning James Buchanan brings brings it to mind, is mm-hmm. that there's no such thing as Russ Roberts when you're behind the veil of ignorance. There's no such thing as baseball behind the veil of ignorance. These are th- it's an interesting, perhaps, intellectual experiment to say uh, how much should a, a bricklayer or a blacksmith or a auto worker earn in a if I don't know whether I'm going to be that person. But of course, those are we take those as given in the exercise. But of course, they emerge through the choices people make and the skills they have, and they all depend on the other skills of the other people. So you can't even say how much should a bricklayer earn. I'll pick a blacksmith. How much should a blacksmith earn? Well, there aren't any blacksmiths anymore. So how how does that affect our calculus? Or we could ask the question, well, how much a blacksmith would earn might depend on a thousand other – millions of other people in the society in in 1850 and what their skills are. And it's it's an interesting suspension of disbelief, I guess, and requirement of, 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 of knowledge that, of course, you can't have. Yeah, so James Buchanan would say we start from here, and I think – Where's here? Yeah, well, here, here is here <laughs> in the world of Russ Roberts and, yeah. <laughs> and baseball. Yeah. Uh, and in a way, I think Rawls would say, well, wait a minute. That's my theory too. I don't disagree with that. But he would say, well, we, won't, we don't want to start off with our epistemology situated in that world. We still want to come out of this with – conclusions that are relevant to the world that people actually live in but uh but we in a way we don't start our theorizing from here we say suppose we were starting from nothing what would we build now if you think about the kind of theorizing we're doing there that will not have had any point at the end of the day there won't it'll just have been an idle exercise if we don't come out of it with stuff that applies to the real world of baseball and Russ sure. Roberts. Yeah. So when we say we're behind a veil of ignorance, we're not supposed to be imagining that nothing exists, that we're, that we're making a decision in a void. We're, we're, we're in some kind of what we're shrouds is, or, or uh, yeah. togas as we <laughs> – yeah. But at the end of the day, I'm I'm going to walk out of the door being Dave Schmitz. Yeah. But I'm trying to say to myself, if I didn't know that I was who I am, and I didn't know that talents were getting rewarded like that, or I didn't know that I would have talents like that, or I didn't even know that uh, I was particularly willing to take on risk, I knew the general facts of human society. I knew I knew I would know principles of economics and sociology and psychology. But uh, but I wouldn't really know anything that had a bearing on uh, making my payoff the particular payoff that sure. it did. So so it really is it, it really is a thought experiment. It's it's not meant to be theorizing about a different world. It's meant to be theorizing about our world, but meant to meant to make us kind of envision what it would be like to be looking at our world impartially. I think it's a powerful, really. Thought-provoking idea. It was the most, (laughs) probably in philosophy, it was the most provocative idea of the 20th century. And the book itself, the rest of the ideas, what were its impact? Um, In in 1970, one of its impacts is it encouraged Robert Nozick to write a different book uh, than Rawls had written. But uh, how, before we talk about Nozick specifically, 
what's been the impact of A Theory of Justice, Rawls's book? Well, it, it's hard to say. It certainly changed the profession of philosophy, and it probably changed the uh, academy, the social sciences, uh, quite generally as to you know what has had a larger impact outside of the academy. I'd say you, there probably hasn't been anything more influential than uh, Peter Singer's uh, conversations about you know animal welfare and so on, animal experimentation. Uh, and factory farming. Uh, so, and whereas Singer has had relatively little influence within the academy, but, um, but, so Rawls has been much more influential inside the academy, I think, uh, by far than any other philosopher in the 20th century. But, um, uh, but I think he's, he's really shaped thinking he's, I mean, the thinking was going to evolve and change anyway to what we don't know, but he's, he's taken a profession that had really gone into navel-gazing mode and had started talking about, we're going to define terms and come up with consistent definitions of terms. And he took that and dragged it into, uh, into instead of a state where, where philosophers were talking hard uh, about what to do about practical practical affairs what what's what's the right thing to do what at least can we single out as deserving to be condemned or something like that so <coughs> so Rawls had in a way relatively little to say about global justice for example but he's had many many students who have gone on to say well given that this idea is as striking and intuitive, convincing, compelling as it is that we should be trying to do as much as possible for the least advantaged, given that the least advantaged are actually on the other side of the world. Uh, like, do they, do they count? Are they, are they part of this equation? Are they, are they part of the group that we're talking about? You know, do, do there, are their advantages uh, on a par with the disadvantages and advantages of of the poor in in New York or Peoria or Tucson. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, yeah, so people are working on that now. They're working on it to some degree because of Rawls. So let's let's turn to Nozick. 1974. He, he's a colleague of Nozick's at Harvard, mm-hmm. and he publishes Anarchy, State, and Utopia, mm-hmm. a book I I also once owned. I don't see it on my shelf. To my you see it? That's a relief. Uh, it, uh, it's still here, uh, and I have read the whole thing. I, it, I read it, I think, when I was 20 or 21, uh, 20. And it yeah, elect- the kind of person who would steal that book probably has an inordinate respect for property rights. What? I said the kind of person who would steal that book probably has an inordinate respect for property <laughs> yeah. rights. So that's why, what, why that's, do you mention that? That's why it's, well, that's why it's still there. Oh. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what you mean. You're, you're saying it, no one's wanted to install it. Well, I don't think anyone stole my theory of justice. I, it, may, it may have, I don't know. Hang on. Let me just eyeball it. No, so you're seeing, I get your joke now. Sorry, my slow on the uptake than being the non-philosopher in the room. Um, Sorry. So my, my, you're suggesting my, my copy of Rawls has, has walked, but I, I suspect I lent it uh, foolishly in it. There was some moral complication to that issue. 
Anyway, okay, I, so I, it was assisted walking. Yeah, right. it could be. But anyway, I I was electrified by Nozick when I read it. Um, of course, I wanted to be also. I, yeah, I was. It's, it's a great book. I was on his side. It it is it bristles with um, creative and interesting ideas, and it is not as, in my view, as systematic as Rawls, uh, which makes it a more entertaining read, but a harder uh, takeaway sometimes as a book as a whole. So what? What did what did Nozick try to do in that book, and um, how does it relate to Rawls? Well, I think it's uh, it's a little bit unclear. Might have been a little unclear even to Nozick what what he was uh, <laughs> trying to do. But there are there are three parts of it, and the the biggest uh, second part of the book was more than anything else a response to to Rawls, and so there he's setting out an alternative perspective on justice and distributive justice and so he says uh he's i mean people say that nozick uh, didn't have any premises or foundations and that's just uh that's just not true but what is true is that he borrowed his foundations from rawls uh, to a large degree he said well suppose rawls is right that people are separate persons with lives of their own to live and that they their utility it isn't up to somebody else to decide how their tr- utility trades off against someone else's. Uh, that uh, you know they have they have rights, and uh, uh, and the aggregate isn't isn't a trump. So maybe that's question begging. Uh, but if that's question begging, then Rawls is question begging uh, because that's Rawls's premise. And Nozick said, suppose that's right. Suppose we took that on board and really believed it. Said, I don't think we're going to get Rawls's conclusions if we do that. I think if we, if we take that conclusion, that premise on board, what we're actually going to end up with is, is a, a puzzle about how to, how to justify the emergence and enforcement of, of a state imposed rule of law in the, in the first place, but also in an ongoing way. So he comes up with different categorizations of, uh, principles of justice and with the tasks uh, of forming a legal order out of principles of of justice, but he distinguishes between uh, historical and patterned principles, and he says that uh, Rawls's theory is actually a patterned uh, principle based on a pattern principle and the difference principle that is, whereas Nozick wants us to consider a historical alternative. Which is? Well, um, let me set out the uh, distinction from the, from the ground then. So you might say a principle, say, uh, he distinguishes between, he uses the idea of current time slice principles where he says, you would evaluate the justice of a situation by looking at a snapshot of the situation and saying, are the shares the right size in that situation? You don't care how the shares got to be that way. You don't care who produced what. You just look at the shares and you say, for example, well, if the shares are of unequal size, then, then that's, that's that. It's, uh, um, that, that, determines that the distribution is unjust, is illegitimate. And then if you, you could look at uh, another kind That's of... That's Nozick describing Rawls. Uh, 
Yeah, in effect. but Because he's saying it doesn't – Rawls saying, ignores how they got there. Yeah. And, but he's saying here are, here are the possibilities basically. And so the two basic categories he wants to talk are, are historical and, uh, and time slice, but, but it's actually a little bit, a little bit harder and more, uh, more complicated than that. So you could also distinguish between, um, a more time, time sensitive or context sensitive, uh, principle, which, uh, call it an end state principle. That's what knows it calls it where you might not exactly take a snapshot and say unequal shares entails injustice. You might say, actually, we should be looking at lifetime income, say, and if the Jones and Smiths have the same lifetime income, then that that is equal in the way that justice requires the outcome to be equal. And so even if the Jones and Smiths have different incomes at a particular time or different net wealth at a particular time, because after all, Jones is 20 and Smith is 50 and Smith has been accumulating both talents and skills and connections and, and wealth for 30 more years than Smith has, than one, than the other has, then, um, then that would be inequality and injustice by the lights of a current time slice principle. But but the end state principle says, no, that's not the point. The snapshot isn't the point. The whole picture is the point. Now, pattern principles then are principles that say we have to look at a particular pattern. Uh, and the pattern might not actually be like slices of a pie. That It might be a pattern of treatment. So you might say, uh, are those people doing worse than others because there's a prejudice against hiring people of their minority group or their religious group or people of their sex? And so you might say, well, that would be where you'd locate the injustice. Then you'd say there's a systematic pattern of equality here. Even if people actually had the same income, you might say, well, those people had to work twice as hard for it, or those people had to wait twice as long for it. So there's a there's a there can be a pattern of justice that's a more a more subtle thing. And Nozick says, okay, well, that's uh, more plausible, but it's still not my theory. It's not a historical theory. My historical theory is that uh, there are there are rules about how you come to own something. So, and the the main question is going to be. Did you acquire that by using force or did you acquire it by voluntary consent? I mean, if, if anybody who had a claim to that baseball ticket said, uh, hey, give that to Russ for whatever reason. Maybe he paid for it. Maybe he's just more of a baseball fan or something like that. Uh, maybe it's your birthday. Say, give it to Russ. Or the current holders yeah. and not a nice person. Or Yeah, well, could be. I mean, lots of. Lots of different transfer principles we could talk about too, but basically Nozick said, no matter what the result is, the result isn't where the rubber hits the road. The result isn't where the justice question gets resolved. The justice question gets resolved when we look at how the transfer actually occurred and did the transfer occur legitimately. And Nozick says the preeminent principle of legitimate transfer is consent. So if I ask, if you have the ticket and I ask you for it and you give it to me voluntarily versus I hold you up at gunpoint for the ticket, the second case, even if I'm the bigger baseball fan, 
is irrelevant because uh, – is unjust because I used force. And the first case, even if uh, I'm the smaller baseball fan, is is just because you gave it to me. Yeah. Uh, or I bought it from you, or but it was voluntary. So yeah. the problem with that, which I'm sure people have assailed Nozick for, I can't remember if he talks about in the book, is that um, many of our advantages in life, and this, of course, has become a huge subject of study in economics recently, but many of our advantages in life are, are given to us. Uh, we don't earn them. You know, my children are, are born in the United States. They're born in the United States of a certain uh, – parental endowment of genetics and environment and the odds are good they're going to be above the median in material well-being they may not they may choose a path that's less uh rewarding materially but it's certainly open to them to be well above the median if they choose to be and is that fair just because it's voluntary they didn't steal it from anybody and what's nozick's answer to that with this stress on voluntary exchange yeah. versus expropriation well, let me uh, let me kind of start at the start, if you don't mind. There was uh, we got at least other half an hour. Nozick now. is working in a, <laughs> in a Lockean tradition, trying to develop an alternative to uh, to Rawls's theory, and so Locke is starting out responding to a fellow named uh, Lord Filmer, who basically said uh, all the Earth was given to mankind in common. But no, that can't be right because if it were the case that we all were common owners, then nobody could do anything. We'd all be paralyzed. We wouldn't have the right to take a breath or to stand, even just to simply stand our ground without getting the permission of everybody else in the human race to stand there. So Filmer says that that can't be, that can't be right. Uh, and therefore, it must be the case that God didn't give the world to all mankind. God gave the world to Adam, and Adam, uh, and then Adam passed it on to his children, and that's how it ended up in in, uh, in the hands of Adam's distant descendants, namely today's yeah. today's kings. No, the, the oh, kings. Sorry, the king. Uh, yeah, and so, not us. Them. So uh, Locke Locke made fun of that. He mocked that, but he also uh, came up with a pretty sustained uh, argument against that. Now, Locke didn't talk about us appropriating our talents per se. Mainly what he talked about is, is appropriating land. But Nozick comes in understanding that we need to have some kind of theory about how we originally become the owners of anything at all. Now, there's this principle which we already talked about. It was a principle of just transfer. So, you know, if that ticket belongs to me, the way you get that you acquire property in that ticket is by giving doing justice to the claim that I have prior to yours and so you do justice to my claim by uh, by asking me if you can have it and I say well what are you proposing and then you make an offer of some kind and I say well yeah that'll work for me and then we make an exchange and now you're the owner of the ticket I'm I've relinquished ownership but if we suppose then that um uh say, my talents. Either my talents came into the world uh, as my property or my talents came into the world as the world's property, as it were, the human race's property, which actually is uh, more or less like Rawls's uh, theory in the end, but that's what Nozick wants to repudiate. So 
knows it Rawls being that it's the world's property. Yeah. Yeah. So so Nozick uh Nozick basically says what what Locke says is uh there's got to be some way in which uh, in which we can we can do things with the world that if this is supposed to be a theory that has something to do with respecting separate persons then it's got to have something to do with separate persons having the right to sustain themselves to feed themselves um with the emphasis on themselves that uh that if they can't even put food in their mouths uh then well there's nothing respectful about that there's nothing uh, individualistic about that that's uh that's taking a theory to um an extreme that prevents it from ever having anything to do with our world. And so Nozick says, well, we do want our theory to have something to do with helping people solve a problem and live lives in, in this world. So, so he says the way we re- acquire land is by mixing, uh, mixing our labor with something to which nobody else has a claim. And that latter part is not a throwaway. That's a really important part of the theory. He's not saying, if I can, uh, you know, run out onto your lawn with a shovel and turn over a few scoops, then I come to own your lawn. It's like the only way for me to come to own your lawn is by coming with, a, coming up with a mutually agreeable arrangement with you. But if nobody has a claim, if you don't have a claim, then the thing that I do when I dig up a mushroom or something like that or plant a row of carrots is I am investing, I am mixing myself with with that land with that product in a way that nobody else is and it's not that that has to be some extremely strong claim being created the point is it's a unique and exclusive claim and so that the only way for somebody else to come along the only place for you to the only way for you to come along later and say i think i'll take some of those carrots thank you or i think i'll share that mushroom with you the only way for you to do it is by ignoring the similar claim that i've made previously you know, when nobody else has a claim to it, then I'm not ignoring anybody. I'm not mistreating anybody. I'm not failing to respect anyone's separateness. But the person who comes along second needs to get my permission then in order to not be uh, disrespecting me as a person. So it doesn't have to be that strong a claim in order for it to matter that it was the first, that it was the first claim and that there really would be a disrespect involved in the same way that any bear understands that, you know, if you get to the territory second, that first bear is going to stand there, and even if the bear is smaller than you, that bear is going to say, I'm going to fight to the death for this because otherwise I lose my identity. So, you know, even bears understand that it matters who gets there first. And people people understand that as well. So the thing about your talents is, in a way, it's it's very implicit in Nozick, but but implicitly the idea is is this, is that nobody else, you know, I can I can exploit my talents i can make use of my talents uh without impinging without making anybody uh, else worse off without putting putting anybody else in a worse position but nobody else can come along and commandeer uh, my talents can enslave me for example without uh without uh, without mixing their labor with something that i do think of as mine and i quite reliably predictably will think of as mine and that you can't really avoid think nobody can really avoid thinking of as as mine if we talk about it at all we will talk about it as mine so let's <clears throat> now nozick of course gets into the appropriate role of the state 
Uh, and he, he comes down, if I remember correctly, arguing that, and I have to confess, although I found that exhilarating at the time, I, thinking back on it, I find it a little less exhilarating in terms of its elegance. But his argument is that because of economies of scale, that, that the state has a, the authority or justness of, of performing the police function. But I want to step aside from the many things we might argue or discuss what the state could do and just focus on the one, which is redistribution. So if the state raises taxes not for revenue purposes, that's what I want to push to the side, but merely to redistribute income. So we've got these baseball players who can throw a baseball 100 miles an hour. We have people who are endowed with great voices who can entertain and make millions of dollars a year as a result, like the baseball players, actors and actresses who are good looks. And yeah. and I'm going to put aside – I'm going to – excuse me, not put aside. I'm going to accept the fact, and I think this is important. Obviously, Nozick thought it was very important, but – all these people work very, very hard. There's a great – when you talk about your talents, mm-hmm. there's a tendency to talk about talents as an endowed gift. It, some part of it is, obviously, but uh, what a, a modern athlete has to do to be a successful uh, earner of those those yeah. high returns is unimaginable, I think, to most casual <laughs> sports fans. I don't think they realize the amount of work that gets put in, the relentless effort. I, yeah. I'll put a clip up on – attached to this of, of one example of this very very moving and and I think informative about this so um taking that as a fact that people some people can throw a baseball faster sing better have faces that are in demand for whatever reason and that they've combined hard work to 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 get there uh is it unjust then to take a larger share from them uh, to take a share from them and give it to others against their will, uh, merely to push the distribution of income toward that egalitarian equal share outcome. Uh, and the question I want to ask is, I, I know what Nozick's answer is. Nozick's answer is no. But the average American, when confronted with the veil of ignorance, what do you think that person would say? It just seems to me they're just two orthogonal theories. I mean, Rawls – would most people, not you and I, would most people say that, well, behind a veil of ignorance, I don't know if I'm going to be one of the gifted ones who works hard or one of the gifted ones who squanders talent. Uh, I might end up being one of the non-gifted ones. I might have an IQ of a, a low number and, and be endowed with a, a lazy temperament, and I'm not going to live very well. And I might be a gifted person with tremendous drive – Michael Jordan or Steve Jobs and, and end up with multi-millions, would most people – where would justice lie there in, in the minds of an average per, of an average thoughtful person? Well, would they find redistributive taxation um, offensive or admirable? Yeah, there, there's uh, – so two perspectives on this. One perspective would be that on the one hand, look at you know that that pitcher who is excelling now, that pitcher is the one who did something to make something of himself, make something of his talent. So like you say, the, the labor is really there. And uh and even some folks on the left, like David Miller, will say the point wasn't whether the pitcher or Wilt Chamberlain 
worked extremely hard or took extreme risk. The point is there was a certain amount of work that went into it, and the work that went into it was, after all, work that Wilt did, not work that somebody else did. And so that is the thing that establishes Wilt's uh, presumptive claim. It doesn't mean that he shouldn't be taxed uh, for various purposes mainly, but it does mean that Wilt is the one that uh, uh, has such claim of justice that has anything to do with, say, with being deserving or merit or, or investing, uh, investing in, in creating the talent, bringing the talent to the table. So that's one perspective. Now, the, the, the counterpoint to that is a person who will say, well, yeah, but in a way, it, uh, you're failing to understand the extent to which the community's involvement goes all the way down. So it isn't just you that worked. It's your parents that worked. And it's your grandparents that worked, and actually your parents' employers, your parents' teachers, your parents' grocers, your parents' cab drivers. Sure. So all of society worked to put you to be in the situation uh, that you're in. Okay, so that's one one perspective that is uh, probably, you know, that that leaves us with uh, with a real understanding of why people would would disagree about this, why it would seem quite intuitive. Uh, I mean, both sides of, of the uh, that debate would seem quite intuitive. Now, the only thing that I would want to add to that is I would say, okay, but let's, let's uh, you know, remind ourselves, are we talking about a liberal society or not? Are we talking about a society that is when supposed to— you use the word to, liberal, you mean classically liberal or modern liberal? Uh, Ambiguous between them, <laughs> just uh, just a theory that believes that an individual okay. is is a real thing. It's okay. not it's not a it's not a you know a scholarly fictitious uh, construct or something like that. There really are people in the world, and uh, people really do have their own hopes and dreams. And people really aren't mere pawns. They actually are agents taking responsibility and making decisions. Now. You can say that, um, well, wait a minute, at the end of the day, society owns people. People don't own themselves. Well, you can say that and probably say that consistently, but you're not saying something liberal when you say that. So at the end of the day, uh, for a liberal, you have to make sure you're on the wrong side or on the right side of, of this question when somebody says, Okay, I got it. I realize that I wouldn't be where I am today without my teachers uh, and my and cab drivers and parents and all kinds of other people. But I don't like this deal. I'm going to go home now, if you don't mind. I'm going to leave the country, perhaps, if you don't mind. Who gets to say, sorry, you aren't enough of a self-owner that you don't have a right to say no you you know maybe we want your kidney maybe we want your blood maybe we just want your labor maybe we want to restrict uh, what you can do by laboring for yourself and your family and at some point we say well let's be reasonable and let's go along with this to some extent but still there's a fundamental matter of principle a question that needs an answer at the end of the day which is 
do I have the right to say no? Do I have the right to walk? Do I own myself? Right? I mean, so the fact that you can think of other people who helped me or you just imagine, you know, how do you know that I'm not an orphan? But maybe you can, you're, in your imagination, all kinds of people helped me. Tell me at what point other people helping me made me your property. Because if there was no point at which I became your property, then excuse me, but I'm going to go home and I'm going to take all my toys with me. If you want some of my toys, if you want me to share me my toys, treat me like an adult, treat me like a self-owner and make me an offer. And you might make me an offer that I'm perfectly willing to accept. I might say, and this was the thing you were excluding, I might say, yeah, I want to be part of a community. I want to be a community that has a real infrastructure. In fact, I want to be part of a community where the roads are free. Not that I think that anything is really free. I realize that I, as a taxpayer, will be paying for the free roads. But I don't want to But the point for is, I want to minimize transaction costs because I want it to be as cheap as possible for my customers to get to my store. And so I would rather pay for that in part of the tax, my taxes than have my, than have to put up a toll road or something like that and have my customers have to pay to get to me. So yeah, I want public goods. I, even things that aren't inherently public, as most public Many goods so-called are. public goods, yeah. Yeah. So I want, I want all of that. I'm willing to pay for it. I regard my paying my share for it as a way of respecting me as a separate person. I'm in. Uh, you want me to fight for my country and maybe get killed in the process? I hate the thought, but I'm in. I realize, you know, that sometimes my share is, is going to be big. But, I, you know, so I, I'm, I'm in for my share. Now, you say... I should also be willing to regard myself basically as somebody else's property. I should regard my talent as belonging to someone other than me. I say, no, if we've gotten to that point, I want to get on a plane with a couple of suitcases <laughs> and my talent, and I want to go someplace where I'm treated with more respect. And if you're going to stop me, then we've stopped being a liberal society. If we're still a liberal society, then you realize this is my this package of talents is mine. So, no matter where it came from, no matter how many friends I had or teachers I had, this is my package of goods. No matter how many public schools you attended, and uh, I, yeah. I'm fighting off the urge just to end the podcast here because that was that was so eloquent. Uh, so, so I want to, but I want to continue. Um, let me re. Let me let me take a different approach at the question. We could make a different set of arguments um, against progressive taxation. So there was a wonderful book. I'm also looking up my shelf. These are all a testament to the these comments about my bookshelf are a testament to my eyesight, the clutter in my room, and um, the height of my bookshelves. But uh, Bloom and Calvin. Two law professors wrote a, a wonderful little book a long time ago called The Uneasy Case for Progressive Taxation, where they tried to lay out an argument in favor of progressive taxation. And they made a bunch of different ones, and they shot them all down, most of them. And they said uh, – I think the book concludes that the, the case remains uh, uh, uneasy. They're sort of pro-progressive taxation, but with a little bit of – with qualms is how I might describe it. So let me make, let me make three arguments, if I can remember them. Uh, against not from their book, but I remember from me sitting here talking to you uh, against progressive taxation. One would be 
it's unjust. Uh, it's immoral. That's a Nozickian argument akin to what you just made, that you own yourself, you own your property, and taxation, especially for the purpose of redistribution, is theft. Uh, the second argument would be it's inefficient. It makes the pie smaller, and this would be a, a Rawlsian argument. So Rawls, while in favor of progressive taxation, would say eventually, um, well, I'm in favor of progressive taxation, but not to the point where it makes the pie so much smaller that people get smaller shares. The third argument against progressive taxation I would call practical, a different kind of practical. And I guess deep down, it's the third argument that that I find most compelling both intellectually and in terms of persuasiveness as I think about an impartial spectator thinking about our arguments, conversations here. Third argument would be, well, if I give the state the power to tax people, that power will be abused because John Rawls is not going to be the commissioner of taxation in this society. And if he is, he's going to end up being somebody different than a Harvard philosopher. He's going to be a, a, a commissioner of taxation and he will be subject to the imperfections of humanity and the special interests that will try to sway him. So when I think about to speak more generally about limiting the power of the state. And these three arguments, I think, work for so many issues. Think about the minimum wage or, you know, the minimum wage is, you can argue it's immoral. The state has no right to talk about what I can earn or pay. You can argue it's ineffective. It doesn't do a good job uh, in helping the people it's intending to help. Or you could argue, well, when you give the state the power to set wages, it's going to do more than that. It's going to end up we're going to be on the road to tyranny. So if you think about those three arguments and this going back to dist- redistribution, I find myself strongestly drawn to, to, the, to the fear of tyranny. Um, it may be I'm not because I'm not behind a veil of ignorance. I'm sitting here uh, earning well above the median. And I have a very good life. I live in the United States, which puts me way ahead to start with and Many, many gifts and blessings, and many of them I've worked for, but many of them, as we said earlier, came to me. When he asked me, you know, so when I, I think about it, I think, well, you know, I am kind of, I have kind of a conflict of interest in thinking about this. So I put myself behind the veil of ignorance. My biggest argument against taxation for purely redistributive purposes is that I think that puts you on a, a road to a very destructive political system. Uh, what's your reaction to that? It's like a sorry about the length and complexity. Of no, the that's thought. that's fine. It's a it's a rich it's a rich question. Gave me a chance to think <laughs> for a minute, but um, yeah. Well, first of all, your last thing, you know, bias is uh, is a real issue. We're we're scholars uh, and we're academics, so we both have a moral obligation to be as as impartial as we can be and to be lovers of truth. Um. And it's and it's really hard. We're we're only human. There are there are lots of you know the ways that our minds work and gather information. They're inescapable, and we wouldn't be better off if we could escape from them. We process bits of information one at a time, and the first bits of information we require we acquire are going to have are going to become the defaults, and it's going to take more energy and so on and, and evidence to overturn those defaults and that results in bias. 
uh, we can't do anything about that. So it's, uh, yeah, it's an issue. I mean, two-thirds of my salary comes from the state. So, you know, there's a built-in dynamic uh, leading me in the direction of being a statist. Uh, and instead you bite the hand that feeds you, as do I, so often. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess... Uh, yeah, that, that hand that's doing the feed doesn't yeah. realize it's being bitten. That's part of the problem, but that's another issue. Yeah. Sorry for interrupting. Yeah, Freud, Freud would have an explanation. <laughs> He'd say, yeah, it was I'm getting back at my parents or something, <laughs> something like that. Uh, so, you know, I'm sympathetic to all of these arguments. I, uh, you know, that there certainly there, there's, there comes a point when either the amount of taxation or the, uh, the form and rationale for taxation becomes so egregiously insulting and threatening that, you know, you'd, you'd, you're pretty much willing to go to war to start a revolution to create a new country, if that's what it takes, in order to make a stand against that injustice. So I'm sympathetic to that. I, you know, I'm I'm an immigrant. I'm a naturalized American citizen now, and I, I believe in the principles uh, of of the revolution. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's still an issue for me that, as a philosopher, that's more like a premise then it is like a conclusion. I can say, here's where I make my stand, and my colleagues can say, eh, me, not so much. Yeah. And I can say, you know, I don't blame you. There's no particular reason why you have to agree with me on this. Uh, so, you know, we can, uh, we can all be brothers until you come around to collect my, your share of my paycheck. But, <laughs> but, but I can see why reasonable people would disagree with this. So it's not, it doesn't, so these, you know, table-thumping you know, deep, deeply compelling emotional beliefs about justice and injustice, uh, they don't make great premises for arguments. They're, they're better as conclusions. If you can get them to come out of your arguments, that's, that's interesting. But if you just insist on them, not so interesting. The efficiency thing, I think, is, you know, we're on your turf uh, when we talk about that, and I uh, I believe that's a that's a really important issue uh, as well. And you know, Rawls, as you say, that that is a Rawlsian argument to say. I mean, there are people in the world, not to name names, but they say it would be worth making the ninety nine percent worse off if we could just nail the one percent to oh, the wall absolutely. and finally get our revenge on all those hoarders and. And, uh, and, you know, greedy, you know, the people who, the people who hog most of the nation's wealth. That's not neat. that they produce anything. They, what they, the way they acquired their wealth was by hogging it, not by creating it. Yeah, so that's Nietzschean resentment, which I don't get to say very often at econ talks. So I thought I'd just throw that in. I, my college philosophy class pays off finally. Resentment. <laughs> yeah. I've, uh, I've read about that for many. I'm not sure I've actually attempted to pronounce that word before. Uh, certainly not. Certainly not on the radio. A, it's a yeah. six and a half, maybe a seven on the quality. Yeah, <laughs> Nietzsche. Nietzsche is. Uh, yeah, you got points for Nietzsche. Uh, now the practical thing. Your uh, your third uh, alternative. Uh, actually, I think that is uh, the main concern that I have too, and in a way. I mean, maybe we're all children of James Buchanan now to some extent, but, but I look back and I see it in Hayek. I look back and I, uh, you can see it in Adam Smith. Uh, you can in, even see glimpses of it in Aristotle. 
But I think that concern and that awareness uh, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, that has been with us. We've been aware of that concern for many, many centuries. And, and the idea that absolute power corrupts absolutely, that isn't just a, a kind of cute way of taking a point to its logical extreme. I think it actually is a, a relevant dynamic of of real world corruption that well the more the more power there is available the more that that power is worth the more it's worth to acquire that power and so the more um uh, the more people will invest and the the more unscrupulous they will be in doing whatever it takes to acquire that power the more they will be willing to spend as well as to lie uh, in order to acquire that power. So, so it really is, uh, there, I think there really is a powerful reason to take at the reason, like Hayek would have said, to take the reasons we have every step of the way. There's always a reason, even a good reason, to create more power. There's always a problem coming up that hasn't been solved where we think we need a czar or a committee or an agency, uh, somebody, we need a cabinet, uh, to, uh, to solve that problem. I mean, like the reasons for doing it will probably never be without weight, without merit. And yet the result of creating more power in order to solve that problem is you create more power that gets bought and sold and auctioned off to the highest bidder, in effect, and used for whatever purposes that high bidder has in in acquiring that power. So it ends up being, you end up, you know, the bills come out, not to name names, but bills come out with certain, you know, nice sounding names on them. And then you actually read the bill and it will be 4,000 pages that have nothing to do with the thing that forms the title of the bill. And nobody, literally nobody has ever read the whole thing. Even the people who wrote it, None of them, you know, like there's 435 members of Congress, each threw in a few pages. So even the authors of the bill don't know what's in the bill. They just know, well, I've got something I can take back to my uh, primary donors and my constituents and so on. I can say, see, you know, I've done what will warrant you in in reelecting me uh, or in putting me on your board of directors so that I can get a $100 million payoff after I retire from the Congress or the Senate. So – You've got that kind of dynamic uh, going, and so you know even even good purposes give rise to uh, corruption. Well-meaning purposes give rise to uh, uh, an increasing level of corruption. And as a as a country gets older, as its bureaucracy gets bigger, it I'm sorry, but it you know it escalates and it uh, um, it starts growing, if not exactly exponentially, but you know at least in Episodically, there'll be periods of exponential growth and, you know, uh, growth and emergence of new forms of power that would have been imaginable a generation ago will be accepted as, well, just the next, next little step that if we didn't object to the previous step, I mean, it doesn't make sense to, to pick this as the place to boiling the frog. But so, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, uh, I guess that's the metaphor, but that's, uh, that is my main concern as well is is just that a power is not going to be used for the purpose for which it was ostensibly created it's going to be used for the purposes that are that the person holding that power currently has i think back to it 
a podcast a few years back with Bruce Wayne and a mosquito where he talked about King Leopold of Belgium, who is pretty popular among was popular among the Belgian people at the time for some of his social policies and legislation, where he was constrained by a, a parliament. But in the Congo, he was unrestrained and he murdered millions of people, I think millions, certainly hundreds of thousands, uh, and took booty and, and uh, plunder. And uh, Bruce, I think, very eloquently asked the question, which was the real King Leopold? And we know the, the answer is the one who was unconstrained. Um, not a pretty picture. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I think that's a real – I think it's a real issue. What, what, what it brings to mind, though, which fascinates me, I hadn't thought about it enough, is that interaction between the political system and the economic system. And, and Rawls kind of abstracts from it. Nozick, Nozick is um, – Cynical is not the right word. He's not romantic about about democracy. He has he has that extraordinary um, passage, the parable of the slave, which uh, I recommend to everybody. I'll, I don't know if I can legally put a link up to it, but I'll try to. And you can certainly Google parable of the slave. You'll find a Nozick, and you'll find uh, versions of it up on the web. Nozick, for many people, became the foundation for libertarian ideas and right. and policies. But Nozick himself um, t- changed his mind to some extent toward the end of his life, correct? That is correct, yeah. Uh, I can uh, – I actually can explain that. I, uh, I only met Nozick once, so I was not, you know, really familiar with him as a person, but – but uh, in December of 1999, Boston University invited me out to give an end-of-millennium talk. Uh, and uh, I talked about the meaning of life because it seemed like, what else are you going to talk about at the end of a millennium? Um, so and that, ta- that talk is in print, correct? Yeah, it is. It's a beautiful yeah. essay. Well, thank you. It's, it's on my website. But um, We'll put up a link to it. Oh, thank you. So I... I was coming out to give that talk, and Nozick sent me a note and said, uh, uh, that's interesting. Uh, would you be interested in having dinner afterwards? And, and I said, well, absolutely. I, mean, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> what, else would, you know, what else would I rather do? Yeah, this would, be, uh, this would be a dream of a lifetime for me. I knew that he had had a recurrence of his, uh, of his stomach cancer. Uh, I did say um, my wife will be with me, um, who is a biochemist, um, and you know there wasn't the go- there wasn't there weren't search engines back then, but he well, they weren't very good. Yeah, he had somebody track down some of her articles on insect biochemistry, and we sh- and he said, well, please bring bring her along too. So we showed up <laughs> for dinner, and he had all kinds of questions about insect biochemistry, and they were smart, cutting edge questions. I mean, like it, so that was people uh, talk about Nozick and they say, well, he was the smartest person I ever met. And me, I'm not sure I know enough about him to say that uh, off my own bet, but uh, he, he was really stunningly uh, impressive, I have to say. And it wasn't because he was trying to make an impression. He was just interested in everything and he had good questions about everything. Uh, but then he turned to me and, well, 
I wish he had had all kind of quest, kinds of questions about my work, but he didn't. <laughs> uh, he said, he said, I want you to know that my departure from libertarianism has been greatly exaggerated. Hmm. And I said, well, you know, you don't have to prove anything to me. I said, you know, that's, that isn't on my mind. I'm not worried about that. So, you know, whatever, whatever you were, or whatever you are, I, I don't care. I'm just, uh, I'm just enjoying dinner. And he said, I want to explain. I said, well, no, if you want to explain, please explain. Uh, and he said, okay, so I published this book, Anarchy, State, and Utopia. And then I started thinking about uh, symbolic value, and I started thinking about what countries stand for, what they symbolize. And I started thinking that this thing that I had said in Anarchy, State, and Utopia, like if someone wants to sell himself into a slave, into slavery, and it really is genuinely his rational best option, like he can save his daughter's life by selling a kidney, well then why not let him sell a kidney? And if, well maybe it takes more than a kidney, he has to sell himself, his person, into slavery, and he says, hey, if that's what it takes to save my daughter, there's no question, Amen. you know, no reticence on my part, no no even sense of self-sacrifice on my part. It's just there's nothing I'd rather do with my life than save my daughter with it. So yeah, I want to sell myself into slavery. Nozick said, if somebody is in that position and wants to do it, who are we to interfere with that person? So Nozick said, well, I said that in Anarchy State and Utopia. Now fast forward, and I'm thinking about symbolic value. And I'm thinking, okay, Countries don't just do things like defend freedom or not or, or secure freedom or not, secure freedom of contract or not. They also stand for things. And at some point, America is supposed to be the kind of country that doesn't just defend freedom. It stands for freedom. And I thought if this is going to be a country that stands for freedom, allowing the emergence of a class of slaves – that's not a really impressive way of standing for freedom. In fact, it's not a really successful way of standing for freedom. And so he thought, uh, he said that I came to the conclusion that it matters what a country stands for. And so even though this is in a truncation of freedom of contract and the sacrosanct status, individual status of, of contractors, he said, I came to think there's an there's a separate importance to standing for freedom, and in view of that, I gave up on the idea that people should be allowed to sell themselves into slavery. Even voluntary slavery just isn't a way of standing for freedom. So it's out, period. Even when it's the only way for a guy to save his daughter's life, it's still out, period. It's an unconscionable contract, cannot be enforced. Of course, people can say, look, I'll do whatever you want if you save my daughter. Of course, they can say that. But that guy can't go to court and sue and said he said he'd do whatever he wanted. Yeah, you know, I, I want him to, you know, be my serf. Yeah, yeah. Do these degrading things, whatever. Uh, so, so that's what Nozick said. And he said, well, that was, that was my conclusion. And he said, but then this other thing happened is, uh, I was, uh, my landlord was Eric Siegel, author of Love Story. So I found out that my apartment was rent controlled and, uh, and I went, and he'd been raising my rent every year. I mean, uh, reasonable, but uh, but you know, significant. Uh, my rent had gone up, and then I found out that that those rate you know rate hikes were were illegal. So I went to them. I, I said, you know, I it's you know, I realized that hey, I'm rent controlled. 
So that actually wasn't legitimate. And he said, Eric Siegel actually waved a copy of Anarchy, State, and Utopia in my face and said, you've abdicated the right to complain. And Nozick said, no, I haven't. <laughs> Siegel said, yes, you have. And Nozick said, you know, I can prove that I haven't abdicated, abdicated that right. I'll see you in court. So we sued him and he won. And, uh, and Eric Siegel had to repay the, the, you know, the back rent from the rate hikes. And said, so then my colleagues started. And then he got publicity about this. Yeah. And my colleagues were slapping me on the back and saying, way to go. And then your stuff came out saying you now have serious reservations about libertarianism. People were saying, yeah, you know, you're so smart. I knew you'd come around. I knew you'd grow up. It was just a phase you were going through. Uh, and Nozick said, you know, it was a moment of weakness on my part, but but it was so nice for people to be slapping me on the back and and telling me that they had faith in me and they believed in me and they had a lot of respect for my intelligence and so on, because they hadn't been saying that for years. And uh, and they started welcoming me back into the fold, and, and he said, you know, God help me, but I just liked to not be vilified for a change. I, I like to not be, you know, a pariah in my own department. So I went along with it and then I, you know, I could have, I could have done the sort of snarky thing and said, no, <laughs> your approval of me is based on a misunderstanding. You know, you, uh, he said, I could have said that, but I just didn't. I was tired and, and I just let it go. Hmm. But he said, in fact, it was just about slavery. That was my genuine uh, serious departure from you know my youthful libertarianism but but he said that's about it he said other than that uh i haven't changed much hmm. so that was that was my conversation with bob nozick um yeah he was he was delightful i have to say we talked about other things as well i mean that guy he could talk <laughs> um, and but he was also very interested in everything he was a great listener as well uh, yeah he was uh, he was a delightfully gr- gracious human being well, we were going to talk about Rawls for about 20 minutes in my mind and Nozick for about 20, and then we'd spend the last 20 starting to explore some other ideas related to uh, justice. And But I see we've managed to go over an hour, and we're still, we have plenty more we could talk about with Rawls and Nozick. So I think, I think we'll stop here and uh, hope we can come back and address some other issues uh, related to justice and, and inequality another time. Well, thank you so much, Russ. It's been it's been great to talk to you. I really appreciate your time and appreciate your having me on the show. My guest has been David Schmetz. David, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.